Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our series of messages today on yes. The most powerful word that you have in your possession that you're able to use if you use it correctly. And I want us to understand from the beginning, I'm not talking about in a kind of speak out into existence, yes. I'm just talking about the normal, everyday decisions that you make where you say yes or no and the path that that can put you upon. We've been using kind of as the grounding for this series that verse that I mentioned a minute ago, Isaiah chapter 26 verse 8, where we say, Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our hearts. Over the last couple of weeks, we've made a big deal about the fact that when you say yes, that if we're doing it correctly, that if we're doing it in the right way, that we are saying yes to a person, not a plan. That we are saying yes to the Lord, whatever that may mean, whatever that might look like, whatever it might encounter, whatever it might be, we say yes to the Lord. The first week of this series, two weeks ago, we talked about Abraham who came and the Lord said to him, Abraham, I'm going to call you to a new place to develop a new people and I want you simply to go. And Abraham had the choice to say yes or no. I was thinking this week that the choice we have with God to say yes to him, to a person or a plan, not a plan, is similar to what happens in a wedding ceremony. Now, I know that that, that weddings have gotten completely out of control. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? In 2018, so this is the latest statistics we have, the average wedding cost $33,931. And all of our, us that have daughters in this place said, oh, right, oh no. I mean, there are all kinds of stuff that go with weddings, showers and rehearsal dinners. You got to buy the flowers and the musicians and the caterers and the dresses and the tuxes or the suits. In the midst of all of that pageantry, though, what makes a wedding a wedding and the most powerful moment of that entire event happens Just between two people. I get the privilege of standing as a pastor often in that moment when they are making their vows to one another. And you've heard me say this, you've been around a little bit. One of the things that I tell them every rehearsal is, when you say your vows, say them to each other. Don't look at me. You're not making them to me. And at some point, those of you that are married, those of you that may want to be married someday... At some point, the ceremony comes to that place where the two people look at each other and oftentimes it started or that things are read and they only have to say two words. I do or I will. But some of the vows that are in there remind us that you are committing your life in that marriage ceremony not to a plan but to a person, right? In fact, what what does it say in there? Some of those vows, some of those classic vows, right? For better or for worse. I have never, in all of the years that I've done ministry, in all the years that I've done weddings, I've never been able to stand in front of a couple and go, now before you say I do, let me tell you about the next 25 years of your life. In year four, she is going to do this. 
and going to develop a passion for that. And in year eight, for some crazy reason, he's going to decide this would be a good option in his career. Oh, and 20 years from now, you're going to have a child that's going to be a teenager. And you don't have a clue what that's going to be like. Right? I've never been able to stand and give a plan. And so when you're committing in that moment and saying for better, for worse, they have no idea what's coming down the road. But they're saying to that person, I do. I am choosing you. You are mine. We are together in this for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. I start to ask if anybody here was richer, but you'd be afraid I'd pass the offering plate right away, right? <laughs> Got some things need to happen around here. Anybody here have been in the poor part? Yeah? Just getting started, job loss, big payment comes along. Apparently, a daughter gets married and you pay $35,000 for a wedding, right? Richer or for poor in sickness or in health. There's a yes to that, right? I'm committing to you. It's interesting, you know, one of the one of the Bible verses has become used more and more in this in my twenty years almost of ministry, um, is the passage from Ruth, which that passage in Ruth isn't a marriage passage, but the passage that says that um your people will be my people, your God will be my God, where you go, I will go. It's a commitment that we're together in this no matter what, no matter what comes, no matter what happens, no matter what sickness falls, no matter how poor we get, no matter what happens, this is us. We are together. I am committing my life to you, not a plan. Similarly, God asks us on a larger and more important even than marriage, which is the only thing more important than marriage on this earth, is your commitment to say, yes, Lord, no matter what happens. But there's also a section of that, and this is where we're going to focus today, that when you make that commitment to that person, there's a lot of yes, but there also has to be a no. One of the lines in there when you do vows is forsaking all others. I'm saying yes. When Susan and I stood there over 20 years ago at Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee and said our vows to each other, I told her I am saying yes to you and I'm saying no to everybody else. That this is a relationship that is different than any other relationship I will ever have. I am saying yes to you, but that means I'm saying no to everybody else. Sometimes in our lives, the most important yeses may be a no. Because sometimes in our lives, the options that are before us require us saying no in order that we may stay on the track that God has called us to be on. And no is sometimes the hardest words to say. Now, not I'm not talking about a no that you use as a weapon when you're mad and you want somebody to know you're mad. I'm not talking about a no when you want to exhibit control over people. Sometimes those flow too easily. I'm talking about a no to something that seems enticing, that may feel good, that might be all right in that moment saying no in order that your life can continue on the track of God is not always easy. Luke chapter 4. It's the 
you look at the heading, if you've got one of those Bibles that has a heading at the top of it, mine reads the temptation of Jesus. And it is the temptation of Jesus. Or today we're going to talk about when no means yes. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, I always love how they put this setting together. Then Jesus left the Jordan. What happened in the Jordan? Anybody know what happened in the Jordan right before this? Baptism. All right. So Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit. So get the picture here. This is right after he has been baptized. If you remember that scene, John the Baptist baptizes him, tells the crowd that there is one coming that I'm not even willing to, I'm not able to loosen his sandals. I'm not worthy of that. Jesus comes along and John says, I ought to be baptized by you. Jesus said, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. This is to do what we're supposed to do. He baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water. It says the spirit like a dove descends upon him. And so chapter four reminds us that this is immediately following one of the highest points of Jesus' life, the inauguration of his ministry, the moment when it is clear to the people around that there is something different about Jesus, it would seem to us that what would make sense here is that we would read, and then Jesus began to go into the towns and preach and to do miracles and to show people who he was. But that's not what happens. Notice the timing. Jesus has been baptized. He is full of the Holy Spirit. And then he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. This is basically what's happening in this moment. It says that he comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends like a dove. You're ready. It's time. The public ministry is coming. Now, let's go get ready. You're ready. Let's go get ready. And for 40 days, it tells us that he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. One of the things that's interesting about Luke's version of events here, even over Matthew, it's in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this temptation account. One of the interesting things is Luke tells us, gives us the understanding, the way the original language is, that Jesus wasn't just tempted three times at the end of the 40 days, that he had been tempted all along the way, that this is a testing period. This is a moment when he is preparing himself for what is about to come. It also reminds us that we need to be absolutely prepared, ready to do what God calls us to do. One of the modern church's shortfalls, I think, is that we want people to get saved, changed, and do ministry immediately. Just go on out there. Don't worry about it. Just start preaching, start going, start talking, start telling people. And there is something about the excitement that comes. But we also need to understand that when we walk out into the world as a follower of Jesus Christ, the enemy is going to attack and we better be ready for it. And then becomes one of the most obvious lines in the entire Bible. He ate nothing during those days and when they were over, he was hungry. Makes sense, right? Anybody here ever uh, not eaten for like four hours and gotten hungry? Anybody ever been there? Some of you are like, I'm there now, Pastor. Don't talk about it, all right? Stomach's rumbling, all right? So all we know is that for 40 days he's been living on water and his relationship with God, and that's it. Out in the wilderness. What do you mean by wilderness? Well, the wilderness here, when I think wilderness, and I grew up and thought wilderness, I thought about the kind of the, the, the forest behind my house. Like wilderness, right? Like trees. That's not the kind of wilderness he's in here. He's in a desert-like wilderness environment. He's there, and he's hungry. And in those days, when he's hungry, the devil comes to him. 
Here's the one thing that I just want to remind you of and tell you, and this shouldn't be something that is surprising to any of us, that just because you're saved, just because you've been baptized, just because the Spirit of God lives within you, does not mean you can shut out the conversation with your enemy. The enemy will come. It reminds us here, too, that Jesus is 100% human. That's why the verse was there about him being hungry, because Jesus is fully human. And when we read it, we're like, yeah, but he was like Jesus. He might not have been as hungry as I would be if I hadn't been out there for 40 days without food. But the truth is, he was just as hungry as you could imagine yourself being after 40 days of not eating. Hungry and tired and probably a little ill. I mean that like physically ill exposed to the elements for those days. And in the midst of that, the enemy comes, the devil comes, and he speaks to Jesus. And he says, the devil said to him in verse 3, If you are the Son of God, we don't have time today to to get through all that is in this passage. This passage is full of great stuff for us to understand. And so I only have time to focus on some things today, like one of the ways that the enemy will, will get you to doubt your salvation or doubt yourself is to question the very identity you have in God. And he comes to the Son of God and says to the Son of God, if you truly are the Son of God, why don't you prove it to me? Why don't you show me who you are? Tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus said, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. He basically comes to him in this first temptation and says to him, hey, listen, I thought you were the son of God. Sons of God, royalty shouldn't be starving like this. If you're truly the Son of God, the most powerful being in the universe, the most powerful, the Almighty, the God that you claim that you're the Son of, if you claim that's who you are, which the enemy knew he was, the devil wasn't asking to get validation so he could prove it to the enemy. The enemy knew, the devil knew who he was. He is trying to get Jesus to question it, to doubt it, to worry about it. He says, if you were, you shouldn't be in this state. If you're the Son of God, you shouldn't be hungry. If you're the Son of God, you shouldn't be in this physical condition. If you you are the son of God. You ought to have everything you ever wanted or desired. You should have it all. And what I want you to understand is happening in all three of these temptations is a basic question is being asked. That is the basic question of almost every temptation we have. And it is simply this. Will you control your desires or will your desires control you? What we see and know from Scripture is that God created appetites. God created desires. And they were good and they were from God. And they were to remind us in some ways of our dependence upon Him. Our dependence upon food. When He does manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. When they are wandering around looking for the promised land. When He is giving them manna. It is a daily reminder. Their daily manna. Their daily food. Of their daily dependence they have upon God. They are to remind us these desires that um, we have with food and water and rest that we are not invincible that we are not almighty that we are not all-powerful that we are people that need things to survive we need water we need food we need rest to survive you ever dealt with a four or five year old that is convinced they're not tired and they're trying to convince you they're not tired. They don't need to take a nap. They're good, Dad. I'm good. 
And it is evident. You ever dealt with a nine-year-old? A, I don't know, ten-year-old, hypothetically, thirteen-year-old, seventeen-year-old. Hypothetically, have you ever dealt with yourself when you're tired? We have physical needs that have to be met. Those are the only needs that God put us in there. There are other needs. There's a need for sex. There's a need for achievement. There's a need for, there are desires that God put within us that are to be fulfilled in the way that he intended for them to be filled. And the question that the enemy is going to ask you, no matter what stage you are in life, where you are, what your relationships are, what your relationship is with your achievement, your career, what it is with food, what it is in every area of your life, the question that is going to be asked is, will you allow your desires to control your yeses and your nose, or will you control them? And the devil comes to Jesus and says, Man, just get some food. God's the one that made you to want food. Just, you got the power in you. If you're the Son of God, this won't be a problem for you. Just take those stones, flip them into some bread, and eat it. And this isn't some kind of. of shenanigans magic trick he's talking about actual transformation jesus is able to do it just do it what satan is attempting in all of these temptations is to get jesus to accomplish something that is not necessarily bad or is already promised to jesus in the future but to do it prematurely and in a way that is not honoring to god He's going to eat again, right? God hadn't called him to a lifelong fast. But the point is that God's called him to a 40-day fast and to end well. This story reminds me a little bit of an Old Testament story that I've used many times because it's so, I think it's so important for our society to understand. The story of Jacob and Esau, two brothers Esau was the oldest, Jacob was the youngest, although when they came out, Esau comes out, Jacob is grabbing his heel, which is to show that he is deceptive. The Bible tells us that Esau grew up to be a great hunter, Jacob grew up to be a great cook. One day when Esau came in from hunting all day, he was famished and his brother was in there cooking some kind of soup that smelled unbelievable. Esau said to Jacob, hey, just give me that a little bit, I need that, famished. You remember the story, most of you, right? What did Jacob say he needed in exchange for the suit? Birthright. What's the birthright? A whole lot of money, a lot of prestige, and the leadership of the family. And Esau says one of the most ridiculous statements you could ever make. If I die, what good is the birthright to me? He wasn't going to die. I'm so thirsty I could die. It's not going to happen. And he exchanges his birthright and his place in the kingdom of God for a bowl of soup. I preached on that a few years ago, and I don't know if you remember this, but just think about this. When we talk about the patriarchs of the Old Testament, we talk about Jesus came from the Israelites. We talk about they came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you know why we don't say Esau? Well, there are lots of things that happen after it, but the first time we don't say Esau, God had already prophesied it, is because Esau sold that right to be in that line to his brother for a bowl of soup. The principle behind all of these temptations is this. Don't sacrifice tomorrow to be satisfied today. 
And when you are choosing your yes and when you're choosing your no, when you're making decisions about what to do or what not to do, what to say no to, don't sacrifice your future to be satisfied today. Satan here is attempting to get Jesus to question God's provision, to question God's goodness. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because it's the same thing he got Adam and Eve to question in the garden. And part of what is happening in this temptation account of Jesus that we are being described to here is that Jesus is reliving the temptations that came to the Israelites and to Adam and Eve originally, and he is going to succeed in saying no. I mean, in this passage of Scripture, it says, The devil said, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus uses Scripture, but his basic answer is no. He says, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone. So how does that work out in the second temptation? It says in verse 5, So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor. And all this authority, because it's been given over to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all this will be yours. And Jesus again says what? He says, no. Now he says it a little further. He gives another quotation from Deuteronomy. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says, I can't bow to you because I can only worship God. But here's the second temptation. Jesus is going to be given the kingdoms of the earth. He is going to be given that over to him. He is Lord of all. At this particular moment in history, before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ongoing sanctification of our world, before all of that is in play, at this particular moment in the world. God has given those kingdoms, given some authority, some limited authority. The devil has been said is like a dog on a leash. God has given him some authority, some ability in this world, but it is within the sovereignty of God. Then he could have, if Jesus had bowed to him, given him some form of what Jesus would eventually get, but it is not in the same way. And what he is offering Jesus here is saying to him, why don't you go ahead and get the kingdoms of the world, become exalted without the crucifixion get the glory without the humiliation the gain without the pain the crown without the cross it's a shortcut to achieving the mission that god has placed in your life by the way it's the same temptation that would come to jesus although we don't see satan there in the garden of gethsemane lord if there is any other way take this cup and again He says, no. And then the last temptation. Verse 9. So he took him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, again, he questions who he is. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written. This is what's interesting here. Jesus has already said it is written twice. So Satan decides he'll try. It is written, Satan says. By the way, just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. That, that was a good place for an amen. But just because they can quote a verse in the Bible doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. doesn't mean they're speaking correctly about what the Bible means. And if someone has built a theology or a life lesson on one particular verse that is not in agreement with the totality of the whole counsel of God, then don't follow it. See, that's a good thing. We could do a whole sermon on that, but we're not. All right. For it is written, he will give his high 
his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with his hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. What he basically says is if you are the son of God, if you're truly who you say you are and you jump off of this thing, they will catch you. Now, again, he is planting in him an idea, a mindset that God isn't really taking care of you. If he would, he would protect you. Just prove it. Just show it. Just make sure you understand. Just make sure that you know for sure. It'll give you the assurance moving forward that you are who you say you are. Jesus would face this temptation on the cross. If you are the son of God, why don't you call the angels to come and take you down? help you out just end it and jesus looked at him and said do not test the lord your god three times the enemy comes to jesus and three times he gives a very simple answer now he gives it with scripture but he simply says to him no And then verse 13 says, After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed for him for a, and one version of this says, a more opportune time. He says, I'll be back. Now this is what I want you to see. Jesus says no three times. And in verse 14 it says, Then Jesus returned to Galilee, In the power of the Spirit, he hasn't sacrificed anything because he said no in the right places. And news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. One of the things as believers that we have to learn to do is this. Is to say no when we need to say no. In fact, if you wanted to put the statement that I said a couple of minutes ago about the first temptation, that is true of all three of these temptations. That all three of these, what it comes down to is Jesus doesn't sacrifice tomorrow to be satisfied today. And if we could instill in the lives of our children, of our teenagers, of ourselves, no matter whether we are 10 years old or 98 years old, Anywhere that is in between. If we could understand for ourselves that every day we make decisions that determine the future of our lives. And many of us, if we're not careful, are on the verge of, or maybe you think you've already made a decision that sacrifices your tomorrow because you need to be satisfied today. And so I want to end today by giving you three questions you can ask yourself on a daily basis to be able to filter through what is good and right to say no to and what is good and right to say yes to. And the first question that I'm going to have you ask is simply this. What is your mission? Why are you here? What's the purpose of your life? What's the reason for your existence? You see, Jesus knew from the very beginning that the reason for his existence, the purpose for his life, was that he had come to be the sacrificial lamb to save you and to save me from our sins by dying on the cross for all mankind. And he knew that he could not waver from that mission. 
in Luke 9, 51, it tells us that he sets his gaze on Jerusalem, that he puts his focus on Jerusalem, that he has like a, a single-minded, one-lane track of mind saying, I am going to Jerusalem to fulfill the purpose that God has for me. Someone has said that the most successful people in life are not always the most talented, not always the wealthiest, not always from the best family, and not always from the best schools. But one thing that almost all of the most successful people in life have is they have a sense of clarity about what they want to accomplish in life. And when you are facing temptation, when the question is, is this no, what I need to say in order to say yes to God, when you are facing that moment, you must have a clarity of vision about who you are and the reason you're here. That's why Isaiah 26, 8 has become such a, a, a point for me to focus on in my life, that His name, His renown is the desire of my soul. It oversees, it supersedes every other desire of my life. Or at least that's my hope. You know what's interesting is don't ever stop reading the Bible too soon. If you keep reading uh, Luke chapter 4, he gives us the reason he said no at the beginning of chapter 4. Just a couple of verses later in verse 18 he says, the Spirit, he's reading from Isaiah, he's reading a scroll in a synagogue and he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His mission is before him at all times. Second question, after what's your mission, second question, is God big enough for you to say no? We live in an era when everybody worries about what they're going to miss. There's that phrase out there, FOMO, fear of missing out. People see stuff on Instagram, see stuff on Facebook, see stuff on Snapchat. Everybody's excited about, hey, man, I don't want to go to that. I don't want to miss that. I don't want to miss that movie. I don't want to miss that show. Can't miss this cultural touch point. We got it in entertainment areas. We got it in friendship, relationships. Can't miss out on that. Can't miss out. My kids, I can't, my, my kids can't grow up without doing this. And sometimes when we are faced with a decision, the question we have to honestly ask ourselves is, do I trust God enough to say no? No matter what that means on the other side. Because remember, we say yes to a person not a plan. My favorite story with that is the three men in the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we won't bow down. And they say, we have a God that will deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. We need a generation. We need a church of individuals who will say, I am going to say yes to the Lord no matter what that means. I'm going to say no to this thing that the enemy has brought before me no matter what that means. And here's the last question. Is your yes worth the no's? This is what I mean by that. Whenever in life we say yes to something, we immediately eliminate other things from our lives. And so whatever it is that you're eliminating from your life, if the yes that you're about to say, when you're faced with a temptation, when Jesus is faced with the temptation that devil brings him, when jumping off and being caught, or, or those cities of the world if he just bows down, or turning stones into bread, 
Is his yes in that moment worth the no's that are going to trickle out from it? If he had said yes to any of those things, we wouldn't be here today. And I don't know how it worked. I don't know how it happened. But I believe that in some way Jesus was able to peer through history and know that in that moment, if he said yes to anything that enemy was offering, it would mean saying no to the salvation of us. I wonder if Esau had been able to look through the history that it was coming. He just needed some food, he thought. What did he care about anything else? Would he still be able to say yes to the bowl if he knew what the nose would mean? There are some of you in this room right now that have something before you that you're facing, maybe something you've been struggling with, and the question that is on your mind is, should I say yes or no? If it's from the enemy, what we need to understand is many times in life, a no to the enemy is a yes to the Lord. Let's pray together.